Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Segal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech ecosystem with JD Maori, who is president and CEO of KBI Biopharma. I absolutely loved this conversation today, and you are in for a treat. Jiddy is an accomplished leader with a distinguished reputation in the biopharma industry and proven expertise in guiding global innovators and CDMOs for almost 25 years. Throughout his diverse career, Jiddy has demonstrated strategic vision and the ability to drive all aspects of an organization, including operations, R&D, manufacturing, tech transfer, facility construction, BD, employee growth, and investor relations. He is an expert in diverse modalities, including small molecule biologic, biologics and cell and gene therapy. He has held executive leadership positions as head of operations at Lonza and executive VP of US operations at AGC Biologics. He has also held influential roles at innovators, including Genentech, Celgene and Juno, and most recently served as chief operating officer at Treadwell Therapeutics. And Jenny also holds a Bachelor of Science from George Fox University and an MBA from Merrillhurst University. Super, super impressive guy with a wonderful ability to talk about culture in, in leadership, as you will see. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you are. And please enjoy today's show. Hey, JD, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hey, Ramon. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. Yeah, super excited to have you on as well. You're a you're a busy man flying all over the world uh, across the various business operations that you guys are involved with. So I suspect a lot of our listeners may have come across you and your name at some point during their time in the sector. But if they've been hiding under a rock somewhere or just haven't come across you, give our listener a bit of the backstory. You know, JD's story from kind of college through the various roles that you've done uh, to your to your role today as as you know CEO at KBI. Happy to do that, Roma. Thank you. Yeah, so I've started my career at actually in the chemical industry um, and spent about seven years doing that. Um, in 2007, I had the opportunity to move over to a small molecule sterile injectable organization where I was employee 38. Our claim to fame, we brought to market a sterile suspension product um, that had been around for close to 50 years and had never had a generic equivalent. So we were the first um, to bring that to market. Fast forward to 2014, and my wife actually used this uh, for preterm labor for my sons before they were born. So kind of wow, like cool cool story. Have to have that conversation another day. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you, you hear uh, from many people that you know, in order to continue to progress in the, the biotech and pharma space, that you need an opportunity to work within some of the big players. Um, so in 2011, um, I relocated out to Oregon to help Genentech start up their drug product filled finish facility that's outside of Portland. I spent some time with them leading tech transfers um, from facilities in Europe um, into that site. And my last year with Genentech, um, I actually relocated down to the San Francisco area and was uh, part of the global MSAT organization where I was responsible for overseeing some of the drug product partners that Genentech uses. And that was really where I was first exposed to the CDMO industry. Shortly thereafter, um, I was recruited away to go help Lanza build and start up a cell and gene therapy facility in Portland, New Hampshire. 
um, and had an opportunity from from 2015 to 2018 to really gain a lot of experience in the CDMO space. Also responsible for helping to make sure that the facilities globally were ready for late stage commercialization from a regulatory and an aseptic processing so spent some time with the CDMO side there. And then um, in 2018, um, I had an opportunity to rejoin some of my former colleagues from Genentech and go out and be part of um, helping to bring Juno forward for commercialization. And I joined just prior to the acquisition by Celgi. So had an opportunity to help us get that team stood up and ready to go for um, the late stage, the BLA filing, really operated that facility um, more similar, I would say, to the way we operate a hospital. Uh, making sure that when a patient material came into the facility, we could actually process it um, forward at, at any given moment of the day. Super rewarding time in my career. It was one of the most special teams I've been part of. And then uh, shortly after that, 2019 or so, um, I had an opportunity to go run ADC's facility in uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Spent about a year doing that. Um, interesting times. That was when COVID hit. So uh, being in Denmark when that started and running a commercial facility there, interesting for myself, my team. Um, and then in August of 2021, I had an opportunity to relocate back to, to the U.S. and run a U.S. operations for ATC, um, where I had responsibility for ultimately ended up being three sites, one single-use disposable primarily, um, also some microbial operations in Seattle, one that was large-scale 20,000-liter uh, mammalian manufacturing. Um, and then we had acquired a cell and gene therapy facility in Walmart, Colorado, very same window. In early 2022, I was recruited away by Treadwell Therapeutics. So again, moving back over to the innovator system to go be their chief operating officer and spent quite a bit of time helping them to build the infrastructure, uh, gearing things up for um, IPO. We've been doing some fundraising and spending the time with the team there, um, showing them what a, you know, a very heavily research uh, influenced organization could do as far as progressing towards a commercial launch. And then, you know, capital markets and things like that shifted a bit. So a lot of the things that I was brought in to do, we, we pushed out by a few years and had very open dialogue with the leadership team there. You know, what was the best use of our capital? And around that same window of time, uh, Tim Lowry and I had an opportunity to reconnect because the role of KPI had come open. Um, and I had met him about a year prior and they were really looking for someone who was um, deep in operational experience um, to come in and help build the organization up shore up some of the foundation as far as the way we work with our customers, how we're committed to them, operational execution, uh, operational efficiencies. So Tim and I really, really hit it off. His boss is Eric Johnson, who is the CEO of JSR. Had an opportunity to interact with Eric and meet him. And, and he, he's a very similar person to Tim that wonderful to work with. So made the decision to make the transition to KBI and I joined on the 1st of April. Um, and we've hit the ground running as far as uh, shoring up that foundation and making the, the right types of changes that set KBI up for long-term execution. Thank you for that. And we will spend a significant amount of time chatting about KBI. Before we do that, let's uh, let's go back to some of these milestones. It, uh, it was great hearing you bounce through your story. And I want to go back to you kind of briefly mentioned, and I, I appreciate we don't take, we won't take the whole, whole podcast up about, you know, talking about the product that you help bring to market, that like your wife later obviously used in 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 her personal life you i suppose what was it like at that phase of your career to bring a product to market and i suppose years later see the the kind of patient impact on your own family and the reason i asked that it's it's one of those things that every guest you know either says or hints at you know that we do this for the patient and actually the impact is on our the lives of our families and friends and everyone around us but obviously in your case 
you not only got to be part of a team that brought that product to market, but actually it was one that impacted your own family. So just talk us through some of the emotions of, of both both sides of that, both the, the, the product and also the, the use of the product with your wife later on. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because I mean, I think I gained a great deal of appreciation for the impact we have on patients during my time at Genentech. Um, but even more so while I was with Juno because of, you know, the, the direct use in CAR T and being an autologous therapy. Um, it, you don't get any closer to the patient. Um, but from a personal perspective, I mean, the, the really cool part of it is that the off label use is actually for preterm labor and it actually speeds up the lung development um, in the preterm infants so that they don't spend as much time in the NICU. So she was having my sons. Um, so the uh, therapy was administered to her and that was what kept them. They were in the NICU for 15 days. Otherwise, who, who knows how long they would have been there. So wow. just to see that come full circle and it's anybody that knows me knows how important my sons are to me. Um, so th- to see the impact of that work, you know, years later um, and you know, just coming full circle was super exciting. Yeah. Well, and I really appreciate you uh, having the vulnerability to share that as well, because I think it's, uh, it's, you know, it's an old business, this podcast. And so uh, for me, I think it's great to have a leader like yourself that is able to open up and share some of that that stuff. But yeah, what an incredible, incredible story. And um, and as you were, I suppose, moving forward and you were talking about the various roles that you've done, it it felt like a bit of a, you know, a ping pong or table tennis match, you know, watching you bounce back and forth between innovators and CDMOs. You're, a, you're clearly a man in, in demand over the years. So I want to start on the, I suppose, on the innovator side and, you know, you, you mentioned at Genentech, you help establish a, a CDMO, or sorry, a, a help establish a manufacturing uh, site there. So talk us through that experience. And if you if you can almost contract, contrast that with your time at Juno, which obviously at the car T end of the market is much more at the patient end. And I imagine those were two very, very different experiences. Yeah, they're, they're very, very different. And, you know, it's interesting too, because at the time Genentech, right? I mean, it's, that was around the same period where the Roche Genentech acquisition was taking place. So some of those dynamics were at play. Um, so that was always interesting. Um, but to help bring a commercial facility online, it was going to be producing products um, that are, are well-known in the market. Um, and, you know, really when I joined, we were a bit behind schedule of licensing that facility. So to be part of the team that was able to help recover some of that timeline, um, within about 11 months of joining, we had the first commercial approval. Um, and then within about nine months of that, we had a second commercial approval. So bringing that online was, you know, we were producing batch sizes between 50 and 100,000 miles. So you're treating many, many patients um, through a single run. And, and if you kind of uh, compare that to what you're doing in the CAR-T space, you know, you, you really only get one shot at manufacturing, right? Because the patient's apheresis has arrived and, and you're going to forward modify it to get it back to them as quickly as possible. And in the cell and gene therapy space, um, the, the term vein to vein is, is referenced quite often. And it's interesting to think about, you know, there is a specific person laying in a hospital bed waiting on that therapy to get back to them. The, the impact of that and the mindset that it, it, it shifts, it, it changes you from the perspective of understanding how important your work is not that the other side of it is not, but you know, when you're putting pallets of product on a shelf in a warehouse, it just feels very different than when you're trying to put back out the door and it's got to happen in days. Wow. That's incredible. And, uh, uh, you know, and I was going to separately ask you about that experience here. Juno have got a terrific reputation in the car T space. And I imagine it was just an exciting time to be in that organization at that point in time where they you know, were bringing these very innovative 
products, cutting edge products to market, some of the first in the world. You know, talk us through what that was like to experience and be part of that, that kind of, you know, what's become kind of a new generation of medicines. Yeah, it, it was extremely rewarding. And having spent time on the cell and gene therapy side at Lanza, I mean, I, I dealt with more loss than, you know, 20 to 30 different cell therapy innovators that were out there trying to do similar to what Gino had learned. Right. So to get a chance to go over and, and, and support, you know, and help them, you know, kind of get closer and closer to their BLA filings. And, you know, that you talk about connectedness to patient. I mean, it's like one of my very close friends was one of the patients that went through the Juno trials. Um, so getting to know him, my sons know his children, uh, they've ridden in his fire truck. Um, it's just, it's, you don't get any closer, as I said, right now, outside of being a physician. I think that's probably as close as any of us would get to patient. So getting to be part of a team, you know, the, the technical acumen that existed within Juno, um, and in the industry experience that was brought in during that time period was key to helping them realize, you know, the long-term goals of getting commercial approval. Um, so it was fabulous to get to combine that, that expertise and the experience that existed at Juno with some of my former colleagues that I've known for years. I'm going to get, get, get to be part of the team that pulled that forward. I love it. That's, uh. Thanks for sharing that, uh, that experience. And one thing I was kind of, I didn't really think about when I was looking at your background and making some notes in advance uh, of our conversation, JD, was your willingness to move and relocate for your jobs. But as you've talked about, obviously bouncing from, you know, you moved to Oregon, then I believe down to San Diego and then to the East Coast and then to Denmark. And without offending every American in the world, uh, having lived in the US, that's not always the way that I've seen with some of my American colleagues. It's quite a, it's a very European thing to do to bounce around a lot as well, particularly here in the UK. So talk us through some of the thinking and, and openness to be able to move location, not just within the US, but actually, you know, move to a new country as well. And, and how you thought about those opportunities was location ever a, a barrier if you like yeah it's a great question thank you roman for me it, it's interesting um i've always been very risk tolerant um but i've also i, I believe i'm a constant learner so i, I want to be able to pursue whether it's new modalities new technologies i'm always looking for an opportunity to learn more about our sector and if you look across all the different modalities that i've had the opportunity to work with and um a lot of that has to do with those decisions that i made Every single time I was you know, made a transition, it was in most instances, I guess I should say, it was being recruited away for a role. Um, but I've always, you know, kind of kept an eye on the things that I thought were important for, you know, kind of my leadership, what was going to grow me and challenge me, um, you know, and the ability to, to go and work abroad was also something to from for my sons. I wanted them to have that experience while they were young to get to go over and, and you know, really enjoy that time of their life, um, which they did. Um, it was not as long as what we would have liked. But it was it was a fabulous experience. Um, but I think it's it, it's important for you know especially leaders or through the ranks if they're able to keep themselves as mobile as possible and be open to new ideas and new experiences and, and have that tolerance for risk. I think you could actually grow your career and grow it exponentially. Um, but you have to be willing to do those kinds of things. And it's not for everyone. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be able to pursue my career both from a modality perspective bouncing, as you said, between the CDM, CDMO and the innovator side of things, um, but also geographical. Um, so that's, you know, the move that I just made, um, it's the first time since 2011 that I've been, you know, close to, you know, family and things like that too. So it's a good time period as well for my sons to have an opportunity to spend more time with their grandparents. 
Yeah, good for good for them and good for you because I'm a I'm like yourself a big believer in you know moving around and actually I, I believe your kids in particular become more adaptable and resilient when you change their environment a little bit. You know, as I said, my kids, my sons, you're going to have friends all over the world as we continue to move. So, yeah, I, I was, was nodding in agreement listening to you answer that question there, JD. So thanks for sharing. And let's let's change gears slightly and talk about, obviously, KBI and what brought you there. You mentioned in your kind of intro, uh, if I, I think Tim Lowry was the name. Talk us through who Tim is and, and I suppose, linked to that as well. You mentioned uh, JSR. Uh, life science as well. So give us some context into who those individuals are before you kind of go into what was it that attracted you to, to KBI? Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, let me kind of give you the landscape of what uh, KBI and JSR Life Sciences and JSR look like. So KBI is obviously a standalone entity, which I, I'm responsible for. But within JSR Life Sciences, there are multiple companies, so Crown, Bio, um, NBL, um, just as a couple of examples. The president of JSR Life Sciences is Tim Lowry, who is also the chairman of the board for KBI. Um, so Tim Tim is who I, I report directly to. Tim's boss is a gentleman named Eric Johnson, and Eric is actually the CEO of JSR. So JSR Life Sciences underneath JSR. Um, JSR is uh, extremely well known, especially within the, the Japan market for material sciences, semiconductor, and such. Um, so that, that's kind of the landscape and the way things operate. And just a couple more words about Tim and Eric and kind of what drew me to them and who they are. I mean, it's the two of them had a lot to do with my decision to come here. And it's, it's a lot to do about who they are as leaders and who they are as people. They are fabulous, just down to earth. I mean, for what the two of them have accomplished. I mean, they're both 20 plus years with JSR. I think Tim's somewhere around 27 and two years. So they've both had just fabulous careers. But to sit down and have a conversation with them, it's just as easy as it is sitting here talking to you. They're just good humans. And, and that had a lot to do with this for me. I was looking for a space where I could come in and be myself as a leader, but also be a leader for KBI that wanted to embrace that wider ecosystem, JSR, um, and JSR Life Sciences, and really be a key player to, to leverage the collective brain trust we have across those respects. That's great. And uh, you, you use me in the same breath as a, a good human. So I'm absolutely taking that as a compliment. Absolutely. Uh, listener, that's a note, a world exclusive there where someone called me a, a, or implied I was a good human. But no, that's it. That's, it's, it's funny when you were talking there, I was just you know thinking about how important those personal connections and your ability just to have a you know that chemistry with other humans and other people is just so, so important when you're making life, you know, life-changing decisions like you know, taking on a, a bigger role so uh, you know I, I think many of us will probably empathize with that that's just the, the reality of, of making these big decisions and and so talk to us about kbi then so again for our listeners i think most of our listeners particularly those on the you know cdmo space will have a good understanding of the company and it's been around for a significant amount of time but give us a sense of scale and you know employees and uh, you know the sites that you have I believe you have uh, eight sites across the world uh, just to kind of paint a picture of the business and its capabilities sure absolutely yeah so uh, as you mentioned you know, kbi is a contract development manufacturing organization really developed and started up um, around analytical services um, or some of the core offerings so if you think about assays conduct it for a customer, not necessarily manufacturing capabilities or the development of assays or, or the types of things that KDI was doing early on. 
current state, we have eight sites, as you mentioned. Uh, three of those sit in North Carolina. One of those is primarily clinical first in human, but uh, we do have the ability to do products from there. We've also got a second site that was just recently built and was one of the finalists for ISP site of the year. It's primarily commercial or late stage, so phase three that helps to commercialization. Um, and then we also have some development labs that are uh, where we, what we refer to as Venture Center, which is where a lot of the executive team currently sits. In Colorado, we have two facilities. One is a microbial facility that runs at the 2,000 liter and 300 liter scale. Um, and then we also have a standalone analytical services facility um, that sits in Louisville, Colorado, which is about 10 minutes from the facility. In Texas, we have the Woodlands facility that's uh, primarily for cell therapies. Um, we also do have the capability um, doing some bioassay work in that facility as a standalone offering. In uh, Europe, we have a facility in Wolven, um, which is just outside of Brussels. It is another standalone facility with um, a high degree of expertise around mass spec and things like that. Um, and then in Geneva, uh, which is co-located with, um, you know, at the time was Selexis, but which where we also have our cell line development labs, also do process development, GMP manufacturing, can do commercial manufacturing at current state, it's all um, clinical phase that facility. But that site's uh, pretty unique because we have all the cell line development offerings all the way through process developments. Um, and then we can manufacture two thousand a liter of the facility. So that is quite an impressive business and scattered, scattered across the world. So Japanese parent company, you're based on the West Coast. Your business units are in Europe and across the US. Yeah. So when is it that you sleep at but, night. <laughs> well, finished relocating to North Carolina so I could be down. At- oh, fantastic. Of course. Yes, of course. When we first met, I believe you were about to relocate. Oh, well, thanks for sharing yeah. that. So how is how is the move gone? Is it with is it with your family as well? Yeah. So uh, as of July 1, everybody's in North Carolina. Oh, now. congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I, ironically enough, I'm sitting back in Seattle today. <laughs> well, I did say you confused me with your West Coast location today, but um so even, even, I suppose even, I'm guessing that North Carolina location from a time zone perspective gives you a better, I suppose, a, a more realistic, um, you know, so I certainly found being on the East Coast gave me a better stretch across, you know, clients in Asia, across to, to clients in Europe as well. Is that, was that the key decision maker? Or was, I think you said you had three sites there. I'm guessing that there's a huge core of the business in North Carolina as well. Yeah, the huge core of the business, um, and, you know, and that's also uh, the facility that I sit within. That's also where Tim's office is as well. Um, so even though I, I don't see him often, it's nice to be kind of near him, but it's also where the bulk of my executive team sits as well. Uh, we're actually in the process of opening up a new section of office space where the entire executive team that, that's at least local will be co-located. Right now, we're kind of spread out across the multiple campuses, so it'd be nice to have everybody sitting closer together. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. That point there you made right at the end, kind of, let's kind of underline that a little bit. Because I, I always look at business leaders like you in our space. And, you know, I you know, the business that I founded, we have you know, a few sites, you know, across uh, North America and here in, in the UK. And even that's tricky, you know, in a people-based business to make sure you've got time for everyone and, and actually being able to deliver the work across different time zones. So I appreciate you know the nature of your work is slightly different, but how do you think about making sure you are spending enough time investing in the right people? And 
you know, and being where you need to be across the different sites without completely spreading yourself too thin and actually, you know, not having the impact that you desire. Yeah, it's a fabulous question. It's something that I take very, very serious. Obviously, COVID kind of changed everyone's perspective from a remote versus on-site. Um, I still think you have to strike the right balance. And I personally, the type I, I want to be near my people um, and, you know, at the sites and you know, present and just talking with them. One of my mentors, um, fairly early in my career, he reminded me that, you know, that that is where I should be spending my time as, you know, my teams grew larger and larger. Um, and then if I could spend time with them, helping them to grow and to develop, um, that they would do a better job of taking care of their respective areas of the business. Um, so I, that's where I've always placed my focus. Um, and in the CDMO space, taking care of my teams and my people, but also taking great care of our customers. Those are my primary responsibilities. I mean, obviously there's the running of the business and making sure we're doing well from a financial perspective. Those things all matter as well. But if I take care of the team that I have and I make sure we're taking care of our customers, those things tend to start to take care of themselves. ABI, we've spent a lot of time recently as I joined the organization talking about, you know, this mindset of if I take care of the person on my left and the person on my right, and I really value the impact of my work on theirs, that as we shift that mindset towards this type of a philosophy, that things will start to become much, much easier to accomplish and, and we'll take, you know, have a much uh, more fulfilling experience in our work. So just so I understand that final point there, which I'm, I'm just jotting down. So you said almost within the culture of KBI, having that sense of, you know, taking care of the person on your left and right across the entire organization. So you presumably get this kind of swell of people caring for one another across the culture. Did I, did I understand that correctly? That's spot on. And it's really, I mean, it's about the person, but it's also about, you know, your work and how it impacts theirs and making sure that, you know, you're, you can produce as high quality as work, of work as possible. Um, then, then the output of that work makes the next person's job that much easier to do. Uh, and I genuinely think that's, you know, terrific advice for any business either scaling up and, uh, you know, all you know, running across different locations. I mean, one of the biggest challenges that we see with with businesses is kind of retaining that core culture as they scale and add more bodies and more sites with some kind of key almost philosophies within the business, a bit like JD mentioned there, I think are critical in, in helping that scale up process be a bit easier. So I appreciate you you kind of sharing that. In You said that you, you mentioned a, a, a name before, Selexis, and uh, you know, in our kind of background research, obviously, I believe it was a few months ago, a few months after you joined, in fact, that um, you know KBI merged with Selexis, and uh, and I and I noticed that you know, the KBI name will you know be the one that is is kind of used, or the KBI Biofarm as is the name that will be used moving forward. So, what can you share about how that came about and what it involves? And presumably, it's a it's a really exciting step in in the growth of the organization. Yeah, I love telling the story about KBI and Selexis. So thank you for asking, Ron. Yeah, it's um, it's inter- So we refer to it as an operational consolidation. Um, so both companies were owned, wholly owned subsidiaries of JSR, JSR Life Sciences. Um, and you know, it was interesting within Europe. Selexis was extremely well known. Um, within the U.S., KBI is well known. Um, but because we were operating as really one entity, um, it was a little bit confusing for customers. Um, just to be very candid. So one of the things we wanted to do was really streamline that offering. Um, Selexis, what they represent for the business is really a very, very premier cell line development offering. And anyone that knows the Selexis name, that's what they're known for. Um, so what we wanted to do was really consolidate that offering and take the best of both worlds. 
Um, so from a, you know, business development, from a proposal, from a project management perspective, it wasn't all KDI or all Selexis. We took a really good look at everything. Um, and, you know, I'm a big fan of best idea wins. So we wanted to make sure we uh, chose the right things from the business to, to consolidate those. And we're still going through that process um, of getting those types of um, offerings that Selexis brought to the table ingrained in the way we operate in the facilities or outside of Europe. So obviously it's very easy to do in Geneva where they're all sitting together and you know, they're just separated by floors, um, but really taking those best practices so that our customers um, get the best possible experience across all of our sites. That's great. And I have to, you know, my, with my marketing hat on and, you know, having taken numerous com- companies through strategic rebrands over the last 20 years, how did you decide on the KBI name and not the Selexis name? I'm sure that was hotly debated <laughs> on the around the board table. And yeah, and the reason I'm asking this is, you know, I absolutely agree with consolidation of brand names as a general, uh, as a general kind of outcome. You know, I say that to clients in prospect. You know, if you've got five, six brand names, you know, in the market doing similar stuff, it can be very confusing for customers to understand how things are connected and. There's often you know, skepticism from the market. Well, how can you be this company and this company? So for me, I'm I'm ge- you know generally keep things as simple as possible and, and consolidate. But I appreciate you know th- those are two pretty you know and and, I, and it's interesting having worked in both continents. I'm well aware of both brands and both have great reputations. So I think it'd be great to share just some of the I suppose the process you went through in making that that decision. Yeah, sure. So um, the process actually predates me. But it was very practical in the terms of making those decisions. When you look at the volume of the business, um, the number of sites and things like that, um, KBI represented a much larger portion of it. Um, we know we've got our work to do to really make sure Europe understands who KBI is and what we can do to, to serve that market. Um, and we're going to focus on that heavily. Um, I would say the other piece of it is just very practical terms, right? From a budgetary perspective, it was much less to shift sticking with KBI than would have been to, to shift our entire network um, to Selexis, like the Selexis representatives. Um, now, with that being said, um, I'm still not convinced we won't do a little bit of a refresh of the brand. Um, I think that's something that, you know, a lot of the team will see, you know, kind of how do we modernize that and what would that look like in you know, future years. Um, but for now, we're going to focus on making sure that the, the KBI name is well known across the world. Um, I tell people all the time that, you know, I walk into a new facility or I walk in and meet a team that we have, and I, I just get excited all over again because I don't know that the market fully appreciates what we bring to the table um, and how gifted our scientists are. So I, that we've got to start with being allowed about who we are right now um, and make sure as many people as possible know who KBI is and what KBI brings to the table. So, Chris, congratulations on the, the, the kind of career that you, you've had and also the I suppose that the moves that you've made and, you know, this is a fantastic thing that you do now. And I, I don't know whether you do it on purpose or whether, you, you know, it's just part of who you are, but you talk about the team and you talk about leadership a lot. Actually, it's it's many times on this call, you've said those words and, you know, it's interesting when I was reading your biography and a bit of background research and, you know, I read this phrase about you that, you know, JD is a servant leader at heart. So, I would love you to talk about servant leadership and what that means to you and, and I suppose how you go about leading leading a team across you know multiple continents. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question. This is probably one of the things I'm outside of patience, this is probably the one thing that I'm the most passionate about. So when I talk about servant leadership, 
I, I start every day and I end every day thinking about how I can take care of my team, what I can do to set them up for success, um, make sure that they have the opportunities to do their best possible work, but they're also being taken care of from the perspective of growing their careers. Um, I've been very fortunate, you know, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, very risk tolerant, um, but I've also had fabulous mentors um, that have you know been willing to give me opportunities to coach me through the opportunities that I've had. And I've always promised myself that, that I would do that for my people as well. I think the other piece of being a servant leader is uh, authenticity. It's just not something as a leader you can fake. You're either who you are and you're comfortable in your skin and you're willing to be vulnerable or you know, give the tough feedback and have that dialogue with your people, or you're not. You, you can't fake it. People will see through that all day long. Um, and, and that's something for me, it's, it's much simpler to, to be one person at all times. Um, and make sure that the side that everyone sees of me is that same person, no matter what the situation is. And, and that's just very, very rooted in taking care of people. And I expect the same of my leaders. And it's similar to the philosophy, right? Of taking care of the person on your left and the person on your right. If all of my leaders are taking care of their teams the same way I'm taking care of my team, then then you start to build a culture where we're all trying to open doors and, and really support everyone in our growth. When you create a culture where you very open dialogue and know that it's you know a safe space um, to be able to share your view on things um, and really have that open discussion. I think there's you know there's a huge amount that our listener can take from what you just said there, and I you know certainly you know request of my listeners to rewind back and listen to that a couple of times. There's so much in there around you know creating that safe space and creating you know, setting team up for success in what is clear is you come across as a very authentic leader and not to not to kind of tell tell on tell stories or anything like that but you know you know in the time of doing this podcast it, i can every leader that comes on the podcast you know talks about themselves often as a great leader in an organization and on certain occasions you then find out that actually within the organizations it's all a bit it's all a bit fake and actually they're very good at talking the talk on occasion and actually behind the scenes they don't actually follow through whereas I think your point there that I wanted to really kind of zoom in on is that I think people can see through fake leadership uh, and, and certainly that's what I've seen in my you know career that if you are you're hypocritical in some ways and you say one thing to one person and do something else I think that is the first way to erode trust in your team and so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that point of almost not just servant leadership, but actually the opposite of that is being that fake leader. So, and I'm sure it is a huge part that kind of the way that you are, JD, with your team uh, and you use the phrase around taking care, it's it's hard not to to, to buy into that, I, I would suspect. So thanks. I appreciate you sharing that very much. And let's, let's just, last five minutes or so, and I could ask you a million questions, by the way. I, I, I've got a million here that I would love to ask you, but I'm conscious of your time. One thing I wanted to kind of follow in the thread, if you like, of leadership was, you know, if I look back at the start of your career and you were you were a manufacturing guy, right? You were a supply chain guy. You were the guy that operationally got things done, but you've managed to so, you know, presume as part of that, JD, you had to look after the operators, make sure the lines were running and actually make sure things were produced on time as, as per the plan. And now obviously you're in an executive position you know, leading other executives on the team and then obviously reporting into a board. Are there any parallels that you take or any learnings that you take from those those early years, if you like, of being on the manufacturing line and being on the sites 
versus obviously being around the boardroom, like some of the behaviors that are that you learned back in those days that are just as useful today in your kind of more executive role? Yeah, it, it's a great question. It's, until you had asked that, I hadn't really thought about the parallels, but it, it's interesting, right? Because at that time of my career and kind of through manufacturing, you learn how important it is to execute crisply and, and you know do it right first time all the time. And I think that's one of the biggest parallels, right? I mean, the sense of urgency and the importance of, of great execution, I think that transcends all functional areas and, and honestly, across all businesses. I think that's probably the one that, you know, that I apply. I'm a very high energy guy. Um, so you know, my, my patience, you know, while I, I'm patient with my people, my team, um, I like to move fast and get a lot of things done as quickly as we can. And I think a lot of that also stems from kind of growing up in a manufacturing environment where everything is time sensitive. I think it's probably those things. And then it's, it's back to the same philosophy, right? Is you know, we knew we had to do our jobs so that it made the next person's job that much easier. And when we're teaching our executive team and, you know, interacting with the board, I mean, one of the things we do is share the financials across JSR Life Sciences with my executive team, um, because I want to make sure that they understand the piece of pie that we own, how important our work is to the wider JSR Life Sciences and then rolling up into JSR. So I think creating that team environment and understanding the impact of your work, it, it really does transcend all different aspects of our business. And just to prove I am listening to you, JD, you used a phrase earlier on when talking about your backstory where you said, I believe you were in a, a, a kind of a biotech role and you said the capital markets shifted. So that that brings me, that statement is brings me nicely onto, I suppose, where we are today and where we're going in the future. So, you know, we're you know, at point of recording, we're in the, you know, almost in uh, mid-July of 2023, the capital markets have shifted so what's your take on, you know, I suppose how that's impacted you guys as a as a CDMO, very much focused on the biopharma space, but also how do you think that's going to play out in the next kind of six to 12 months? Yeah, great question. And I think everyone's feeling this, and this is both the, the CDMO side of things as well as on the innovator. Um, the thing I'm really excited about is I, I believe it is put us in a position where that partnership between customer and CDMO is even more important. And I think everyone understands that from a kind of, uh, diversifying the risk perspective for both innovator and for CDMO. Um, so looking at that partnership and understanding how do we best spend capital for, for you know, my, my organization and also the customer or organization um, so that we can actually, you know, spend the next six, 12 months, you know, while we kind of weather the storm with the capital markets to, to really take care of, you know, the businesses, uh, bring that offering forward. It's extremely expensive to operate a brick and mortar facility. Um, so the innovators, you know, they have the opportunity to spend their capital on making sure clinical trials progress through and that they actually reach commercialization to serve as many patients as possible. And then allowing the CDMO space to really be that true manufacturing partner, development partner, um, where we have the opportunity to operate our facilities. Um, and with, by doing so, you can actually spread the cost of operating those across multiple customers, as opposed to running a facility for a single product or you know, maybe a couple of products where those all ultimately have an impact on cost of goods and running the business. It's much easier for a CDMO to absorb that, that cost across multiple customers. And do you think that risk sharing, kind of spreading the cost partnership, do you think that is being born out of, I suppose, the maturity of the CDMO innovator relationship? You know, it's been a, a sector that's you know been around for over you know, two, three decades now. Or do you think that is a moment in time in terms of the capital markets that they are where it's it's almost born out of necessity rather than the evolution of the of the space. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I do believe that the kind of traditional fee-for-service model, you know, I, I believe that's starting to become a bit dated. Um, I think as CDMOs, and you know, you'll hear us talk about a next-generation CDMO, PBI, we really want to make sure that we're looking at how do we help with that risk tolerance, especially for these early programs um, that are either coming out of academia or startups and we know they're you know strapped for capital. How do we you know, help absorb some of that risk for them to help make sure that these novel therapies make it to market. Um, I, I think part of it was driven by the economy shift, but I also think it's, you know, the bar is being raised as far as what a customer is looking for when they truly use the Lord's partner. Um, so that that's something we can't turn a blind eye to. And I think you're starting to see other CDMOs uh, pay attention to things. That, uh, and that's it. Given your, you're in a, you're, you're, I suppose you're in a quite a unique position given your experience, JD, where you've had, You've been both on the the innovator side and you've been on the kind of service provider side. How does that impact the way that you guys deliver services for your clients? For example, you know, when you join a CDMO and it doesn't have to be KBI, but you know, there must be things that you see where you're kind of like, oh God, that is going to really annoy the client. <laughs> you know, as I, I suppose you you presumably carry more empathy than your typical uh, empathy and understanding of how a an innovator and sponsor model roles and how they think about CDMOs versus just, I suppose, a pure play fee-for-service CDMO business leader? Yeah, it, it's, it's a fabulous question. For me, you know, it's it's always interesting depending on where, I've, if I've shifted from innovator to CMO or vice versa, the first time I get to have that interaction, right, with, with the other side across the table to be able to relate to them and, and you know, when I talk about my background and they have an understanding of what I've done, it does carry a lot of weight. They, they know that I'm not just saying the word. I truly can put myself in their shoes. Um, and I try on the CDMO side of things and done it with others. I, I'm currently doing what my team here uh, to be able to intervene and help them understand the perspective that a customer is going to have on any given situation um, before it becomes an issue, right? So we can be ahead of it. Um, it, it it's hugely helpful. And it's extremely important if you've got a, a team that have primarily worked in the CDML space, that really don't have that experience on the innovator side. Um, sometimes it's easy to kind of get on that side of things. Last two questions, and I promise I'll let you go. I have to ask, do you prefer being on the CDMO side or the innovator side? I do. I, it's interesting. So I, I see the CDMO side of things as being um, very team, very uh, relationship oriented, um, also around solving multiple problems. Um, and that's how I'm wired. I, I really, truly enjoy building high-performing teams, setting them up for success, and really giving them the tools to deliver and solve challenging problems. This is my dream job. I, I'm doing what I've been career building to do, um, and, and I'm not going anywhere. I, I love this. I love the team I have. I love the potential we can unlock with KBI. Um, and it's just, it, it's a fabulous opportunity. And thank you for not sitting on the fence, because I would have been <laughs> I would have been annoyed if, oh, well, I like them both, which... You were like, no, I much prefer the CDMO side. And it's funny, you know, I, I smile because, you know, when I first started, you know, remarketing my first business, I'd worked on the, you know, as a as a marketing agency, I'd worked on the client side as well. And the, one of the reasons that I got traction in my business is I was able to go to clients and say, here are all the things that annoy you about agencies. And this is why, this is the stuff we don't do. And immediately it demonstrated, okay, this guy understands what annoys us and i was able to get them and so a lot of what you said kind of understands but to you know to your point i much preferred being on the agency side because the variety the team ethic the energy the kind of the chaotic factor at times as well i love it kind of love the having to work your way through it and, and my final question is 
you know, you you mentioned before, um, kind of building a next generation, or you know, you want KBI to be the next generation of CDMO. So, if I'm listening to this and I'm a you know an innovator, a, you know, a virtual biotech and emerging biotech, you know, considering, you know, what will a next generation CDMO look like? And I'm not asking you for the, to do this, you know, next year or the year after. I appreciate you've got work to do operationally and put some foundations in the place and obviously deal with you know the bringing together the team at Selexis as well so this is kind of a more of a projecting in in maybe five years time what in your mind what does what is a next generation cdmo look like and how will that be able to impact a client's business yeah fabulous question um so when I think about next generation CDMO, I think there are really three key pillars. Um, I, I've touched on the one around absorption of some of the business risk to help some of these early stage customers. I think the the other one is, and this is something that I've thought about long, uh, long since being in the CDMO space around our opportunity to to take a more prominent position as thought leaders around the regulatory landscape. Um, so I, I want us to be more active in that space and really making sure that you know as. Uh, regulations change that we're you know weighing in and sharing a collective voice because we represent so many different customers, so many different modalities. Um, I think that's something that we should take that responsibility within the, the regulatory landscape very seriously and, and be more active and present there. Um, the third pillar for me um, is more around research and development and innovation. Um, one of the things that's difficult to do within the CDMO space, right, is when you're you're beholden to customers for cutting edge technology and development things like that. There's always going to be um, something else that's kind of steering your direction. Um, but if you can operate an R&D model towards more standalone, um, you, you can provide you know, services and equipment and technologies um, that the market doesn't even really need yet. Um, that's how you put our customers that are either currently with us or will join us in years to come in a position to be able to leapfrog their that competition by getting them access to that um, intellectual property. And what an exciting future you have just painted. And I feel like that's a Terrific place to conclude today's interview on here on Molecule to Market. And Ginny, honestly, I was really excited to uh, to interview you. Been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks, so I'm I'm delighted we were able to do this. And uh, yeah, thanks for your I suppose authenticity and honesty, and just the way that you are. And I think our listener, well, if they are they they aren't already jotting down lots of notes, they'll certainly be rewinding back and listening to some of your insights. So thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. You see, I told you JD was a good guest and he did not disappoint now, did he? I really, really loved meeting JD. There's just something about him, his energy, his ability to articulate his points around uh, his team, leadership, culture uh, that I just particularly enjoyed. I mean, some of the reflections that I had on today's episode. I think it was, um, you couldn't help but miss the kind of human aspect to the story early on and his experience of bringing a product to market and then seeing that product used uh, you know, on his wife uh, as his sons came into the world, which was a really kind of um, beautiful story that he was able to share in such a kind of a kind of vulnerable way and you know as we we moved on the conversation and talked about his time on the innovator space and uh, you know at genentech and you know at juno as well and you know, he was able to share that the the kind of the carty product that juno brought to you know to, to the world and seeing that impact 
one of his friends in a clinical trial as well, which is again just shows shows the impact of what we are doing here in the outsourcing space, and we should never ever lose sight of that. You know, as, as we kind of moved the conversation along into kind of what he does now and in, in, in the future, it was you know I found it you know genuinely fascinating hearing his views on how he kind of operates across multiple time zones from you know japan where the where the kind of mothership of the kbi businesses across the west coast where he was and just moved from now i mean that that'll take its toll on anyone but i suppose he talks about serving leadership and setting his team up from success and taking care of people i particularly loved that uh, kind of sentiment that he had around you know, why that kind of taking care of the person on your left and the person on your right will help with kind of building, you know, great, great culture within an organization. Uh, you know, the other things that I thought were interesting is we talked about the capital markets was quite a bullish view actually on how CDMOs need to operate going forward and how they are going to have to look at better models of pricing away from just a fee from service. So, thinking about absorption of costs for early phase biotechs, uh, how we do kind of partnerships, how spread the costs as well. Now, these are you know innovative pricing models for your, from your standard fee-for-service CDMO kind of world. So again, it's super interesting to hear someone of JD's experience kind of talking about the innovations in the business model that he sees uh, in, in, in the future as well. Uh, beyond that, what I really liked about JD was just his constant... Uh, you know, sense of this constant learning and about you know growing as as an individual, which really resonates with me. He never ever comes across as a know it all or anything like that. Far from it. He seems incredibly uh, you know curious and you know lovely in terms of the way that he kind of operates himself and conducts himself with his people. And so yes, I'm sure he's a great guy to work with and learn from. So I'm so glad we could bring his story to your ears and uh, beyond that thanks to my team for pulling today's podcast together i could not do this without them and so i appreciate them very very much uh thanks to you for listening and if you like the pod please like and share wherever you are and if you're out and about this fall uh, i'll be in north america predominantly but i will be back for europe for cphi worldwide if you really want to meet me and you must be really bored if that's the case but nevertheless i would love to if you want to buy me a beer then let's make that happen thanks again speak to you soon hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show i really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows have a look on spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, uh, Molecule to Market Pod, or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing. 
an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.